loose in heaven. And again, I, or again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, as we come and we hear Christ's word, we ask that you would open our minds, illuminate our hearts. Lord, we are burdened by sin, bogged down. We need your spirit to give us life and light. Do this, O oh Lord, we pray. In Christ Jesus' name, amen. Someone is choking. <laughs> Not really. Someone is choking. What do you do? You can, ask, you can answer that question. What do you do? Someone is choking. Yes. <laughs> yeah, you, well, I mean, really, big picture. You do, you do the act. Is that what it says? <laughs> you do the Heimlich maneuver, right? The Heimlich maneuver. Yes, we have the, the poster up here. We probably see it in, in restaurants or in different places, right? Someone is choking. These posters present to us a, an if this, then this procedure, right? If someone is doing the you. You ask, are you choking? If they can't answer, then okay. Right. Then you perform the Heimlich maneuver. If they stop breathing, then you do chest compressions. If, God forbid, you get to this part, you ask then, you ask someone, hey, please go call 911 immediately. The Heimlich maneuver. This is the prescribed method for dealing with choking victims, right? If you see someone choking, this is what you want to do. If you do see someone choking, you don't want to just, like, make something up, right? Maybe we'll try this. Are you choking? Perhaps a song will do. <laughs> Are you choking? on their back, like, no, we need something more, something more extreme. They're choking, for heaven's sake. If you don't do it the prescribed way, someone can get hurt. At worst, someone can die. What's the problem? Choking. What's the solution? Heimlich maneuver. When there's a problem... We need a solution. Sometimes we have problems in the church, right? We're a community of blood-bought people that Christ Jesus has dealt a decisive blow to sin. And yet, sin lingers. It, it happens. We sin. There's a, a problem still in the church. It's sin. Sin is still a problem. We need a solution. So when we come to this passage in Matthew, we see Jesus present a problem and prescribe a solution. And he does so 
through an if-then-this procedure. So, step one. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his faults between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Right? Okay, fellow Christian, a fellow disciple. They've sinned. You've noticed it. Maybe it was even committed against you. In any case, you notice sin in a fellow disciple. So what do you do about it? What do you do? You talk behind their back to, to any, everyone and every, anyone other than them? No. No. Jesus calls his disciples to go to that, that other disciple privately, specifically for private discipline. Christians are called to speak into one another's lives, often about many things, and especially about sin. And we see here, when Christ calls us to go to one another privately, we notice that sin should be handled with care and concern. But to what effect? Right? It's hard. Right? Conflict, right? Conflict is difficult. It's uncomfortable. Right? Isn't it just easier not to say something? Like, maybe they'll just figure it out on their own. Maybe they'll just work it out. And I could just leave them alone. If we think of sin this way, if we notice sin in one another, and we don't say anything, we make it pretty plain that we actually don't care about our brother or sister in Christ. That we would rather live in the comfort of, not con- of no conflict, of not challenging. Friends, sin kills. Sin kills us. We want to take sin seriously. And we do that first by being willing to confront a sinning brother or sister. But why? Why do this? Right? Or rather, how? How should we do this? Preaching on this text uh, in the early church, North African church father Augustine said this. He says, why do you rebuke him? Because you are grieved that he had sinned against you? God forbid. If from love for yourself you do it, you do nothing. If from love to him you do it, you do excellently. It is loving to confront the sins of our brothers and sisters. Out of love for them we go. Because we can lose one another to sin. We can be captivated by sin. Sin can kill us. But if we go to one another, if we go to one another, challenge each other, we can restore one another. We can restore one another from sin. Right? So what Jesus says, if he listens to you, you have gained your brother. Friends, this is not an extraordinary thing. 
This isn't like a one-off. This is something that should be on the regular happening in the life of our church, specifically the step one. In our private relationships, we should all care for one another enough to confront each other's sins. Right? With discipleship comes discipline. They share a word, discipleship and discipline. If there was a Venn diagram of disciple and discipline, they would intersect 100%. It would just be a circle. <laughs> we, go, we go to one another with care, with concern. Brother, I noticed you were really short in your wife the other day. I think you should apologize. Christ calls us to love our wives as our own bodies. Friend, I know you're worried about finding a spouse, getting married one day, having a family. But Christ calls us in singleness to contentment, to trust and reliance on him. Trust Christ in this time. Flee worry. Guys, I haven't seen you in corporate worship in so long. God commands us to his public worship because he's worthy. And we desperately need it. And he calls us to cast our worries aside and come to him for spiritual strength and grace. And even this, in the preaching of the word, is public discipline. It's another form of discipline. That as we hear Christ's word preached, Christ disciplines us. How often, honestly, how often, every week I hear the preached word and it challenges all of my idolatry and it confronts me and pushes me to Christ. We want to be a church that confronts and confesses sin. Amen? This is not done in pride. This is not done with spiritual superiority. It's done with love. It's done with concern. Friends, do you love your brother and sister sitting around you right now at this moment? Be willing to confront their sin. Oh, and be willing for them to confront your sin. Let us always be doing this with grace, with love, so that we are always restoring one another to life and light. Let's not avoid this grace in our life. If we do, if we sweep it under the rug, it will fester and it'll kill. It's like leaving a choking victim to just figure it out. When we confront it, though, we give life. But we have to face another reality. And that's the reality that when we do this, we could be rejected. That as we confront, there could be pushback. 
So Jesus continues with step two. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Right? Things have taken a turn for the worse. There's, at best, a lack of response. At worst, there's a refusal. And we see here, Jesus uh, is really referencing Deuteronomy 19 and laying out uh, the principle of justice, that a charge is established on not on just one person, so it goes from private to being multiple disciples, bring some disciples with you. A charge is to be established on the account of two or three witnesses. We know this in our own legal code, right? If you want to bring charges, it's probably good to have witnesses in order to uphold justice, uphold righteousness. But the witnesses aren't passive observers in this. Witnesses really um, uh, ensure a couple of things. First, witnesses ensure wisdom. When you go to a a couple of fellow disciples and you talk about uh, confronting or going to another brother or sister in sin, you can ask, they can ask questions. Well, what are, what is this that we're dealing with? We've got to ensure that we're not just dealing with a, a personal quirk, right? Maybe something that's not sin. Or we've got to make sure that we're not dealing with just, right, sin that we should, that we would all expect, right? Sin in the heart. I, I worry, or this or that or the other. Just simple. We should expect sin, right, in this place. Sin isn't an exception, right? We should expect it. The witnesses can help us adjudicate between whether or not we should go forward uh, and to bring it to anyone else. And I think one author, the way he put it was really helpful, that the sins that you want to confront the most or bring forward in terms of public discipline are sins that you wouldn't expect. Not where we expect sins, but there are sins that you wouldn't expect. Sins that call into question someone's profession in Christ. The mul- multiple witnesses can help in this way. And they also help in another way. They bring a lot of weight, a lot of gravity, if you do go to a brother or a sister. Right? Like, if somebody came, if I had, like, three people come to me, say, listen, we've noticed this thing here. I'd be like, holy cow, how did it get this better? Like, <laughs> right. It brings gravity. It brings weight. Brother, we, we love you enough to come to you in numbers. Please, please turn back from the way that you're going down. If they repent, amen. They're restored. Praise God. Unfortunately, as in any intervention, there's still the possibility of rejecting the care of others. If this is the case, what are Christians to do? The offending brother has yet to repent. So what's next? Step three. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. The final appeal to the sinning brother 
comes from the entire congregation. When it says church, I actually just gave away my answer, but when it says church, we have to ask the question, who are we talking about? Right? We're not talking about a small group. And we're not just talking about anybody and any, everyone who walks into the church building on a Sunday morning. We are talking about those who we know belong to a particular church. To the, this church. We're talking about church members. Those who come together under the same statement of faith and who agree to keep one another accountable to what we see the scriptures calling us to. Right? We, at this church, we use the language of covenant together. We come into a, a voluntary agreement with one another to hold each other accountable to what we see the Bible calling us to. Church membership is all about being known as a Christian by other Christians and knowing and acknowledging other Christians as Christians. It's about affirming one another as professors and affirming our professions of faith together. But when a fellow Christian is characteristically unrepentant in their sin, the issue goes to the entire church, to the entire body of believers, so that the church can appeal to their fellow disciple. If that person repents, praise God. They can be restored. Amen. This is great. But what does the church do if they don't repent? Jesus says, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. What was an appeal to a brother has become a sentencing. The phrase Gentile and tax collector was a common Jewish way of just referring to someone who was outside of the community. They weren't Jewish. They were Gentile. They were tax collector. They were outside of the community. And here we see Jesus saying that the relationship that the church has to this individual who's come to this point that the relationship has changed. That the church can no longer consider that person as a part of the church, as a Christian. This is called excommunication. And it's important to note that excommunication does not mean that the church is saying that someone is not a Christian in a definitive way. The church isn't making them not a Christian, as if the church had some kind of power to remove them from Christ's hands. Good. That's good. What the church is saying is that as a body of believers, we can no longer affirm you as a brother or sister because your life and your profession no longer match. Yeah. They no longer Nash, you say you're a Christian, but there's no sign at all that you belong to Christ. No love for Christ. 
no love for his commands, a total and complete disregard of what he calls you to. Guys, this is, this is weighty. This is intense. This is a sobering responsibility. But this is how Jesus tells us to deal with sin in the church. And I feel like we can't clarify this more. But we do this in love. Like with the choking victim. We do this in love. Not pride. We do this with concern. Not not criticism. We do this for the purpose of restoration. Not condemnation. Not judgment. Do you see the grace in this process? There's so much grace. That the church that, that Christ would use the church as an instrument to call us from our error, from our sin, back to fidelity to Christ. This is important because if we allow someone to continue in sin and affirm their profession of faith, we lie to them. We lie to them as a church and we offer them assurance that they should not be offered. Friends, we have to take sin seriously and deal with it Christ's way. Church discipline is a non-negotiable. Christ calls his people to it. It's right here. No matter how uncomfortable it makes us, no matter how intense it seems, and even in the world right now, right? Does this seem nice? It doesn't seem nice. It seems harsh, exclusive. That's what Christ calls us to. What other option do we have? Well, we got to ask why. Why do we go through all of this? Why is it important that we deal with sin Christ's way? Christ continues and he gives us three reasons why it's important we deal with sin his way. Verse 18. Truly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. If we remember, the the keys language is priestly language. These are the keys to the kingdom. It concerns making authoritative declarations about professions and professors. In chapter 16, right? It was a little while ago, but chapter 16, Maisie preached on it very wonderfully. Uh, Jesus, (laughs) you're you're welcome. <laughs> um, chapter 16, Jesus applies the keys to the kingdom to, uh, to Peter and really to all of the, the other apostles, right? Jesus applies it to them, to Peter, a professor, and to his profession. And he says that upon professors and professions, Christ is going to build his church. The keys to the kingdom that were given to the disciples to exercise in Matthew 16 are here in this text, in Matthew 18, given to a gathered 
church. And we find ourselves talking, right, about a, profess- a person who's sinning, a professor, and their profession. But the church recognizes that there's a real problem between the professor's life and their profession of Christ. The Aaron brother's life no longer matches their profession of faith in Christ. Right? Square peg. Round hole. Doesn't make any sense. It's not happening. This doesn't make any sense. Without repentance, the person is regarded as an outsider, no longer a Christian. But what gives us the right to make such declarations? What, what does this mean that we possess the keys? Jonathan Lehman helpfully states um, in his book on church discipline, Little Orange Book, highly recommend it. He says, churches have the declarative authority and responsibility for making public statements before the nations about who is and isn't a Christian. Okay, we should put some flesh on that. What does that look like in the context of Renovation Church? What does it look like for us to say who is and who isn't a Christian? Well, positively, we affirm one another's faith when we're welcomed into church membership. When we come together and we say, brother, welcome, sister, welcome, we can affirm you are a baptized citizen of Christ's kingdom. Welcome, we can affirm you, you are a true professor with a true profession. Amen. Praise God. And on top of that, when we come together to celebrate the Lord's Supper, we are saying to one another, yes, amen. This is not a just me and Jesus moment. This is an us and Jesus moment. We get to look around when we come to the Lord's table. We get to say, yes, with my brothers and sisters in Christ. We eat this together. We have unity together around the things of God. We are partakers, fellow sharers in the blood of Christ and his covenant. Praise God. This is one way that we make public declaration to the nation about who is a Christian. In church membership, when we come together and celebrate the Lord's table with one another. Negatively, right, how do we say who isn't? Well, we do this through the whole process laid out by Christ in this passage, through church discipline brought to its conclusion. The primary way we see excommunication is actually at the Lord's Supper. Excommunication literally is an excommunioning, if I may make up words. If this meal is where we say, yes, Christian, we celebrate our unity together, then the erring brother ought not to take this meal. They're no longer, we can no longer affirm their profession of faith. We cannot celebrate union and unity with one such as this. It would be wrong to do so. It would be a lie to allow it to happen. Friends, if you're a, if you're a member I'm going to just speak to the members of this church right now. If you're a member of Renovation Church, this is why it's important that we come together in members' meetings. Well, ugh, members' meetings. 
No, not business meetings, right? We're, we're getting away from that language. No, members meetings. Coming together every other month, right, after church. Why is it important that we come together in members meetings? Because it's in the members meeting that we do the work that Christ gives us to do. We come together in a members meeting, we exercise the keys of the kingdom. We welcome others into membership. We celebrate together those things. We say, yes, welcome, fellow brother, sister, believer in Christ. Welcome to this church. We look so look forward to living life with you. And it's also the time in which we discipline those who are unrepentant, who are rejecting Christ with their life, with their actions. Brothers and sisters, it matters who we give affirmation to and who we withhold it from. To the true professor and profession, we call them brother and sister. Together with us in Christ. The one with whom we anticipate spending eternity with celebrating and worshiping God together. But to the unrepentant, we withhold those titles. As a church, we will not lie to you. We will not tell you that you have something that we cannot, we don't think God says that you have. We won't lie to you. There's too much at stake. Your life is on the line if we lie to you about these things. Friends, we deal with sin Christ's way because he's given us authority to steward. Now, lest we think that one church member can just go rogue, right, and like excommunicate another church member on their own. It sounds silly, right? Like, what are you doing? <laughs> you, you can't do that. Church discipline is not for one person to do. It's not even just for the elders to do. Church discipline is for all the church to do. Why is it important that we do it together? We read in verse 19, again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. Those that pray together, stay together. <laughs> Prayer about the discipline cases before them and prayerfully agreeing for the Father's will to be done concerning the, an erring brother is Important. It's a reflection of our unity. Praying together is a one way the church seeks unity on such delicate matters. You know, if we just willy nilly like try to discipline someone without praying, that's foolishness. We seek God. We seek the Father in prayer. Prayerful consideration will prevent rash decision making. And we'll push a church, we'll push us to God's revealed will. Church discipline cannot be done outside of prayer.
prayerful agreement around God's revealed will. A church needs to agree about what a true professor, professor is and what a, true, what a true professor looks like and what a true profession is. And God reveals those things in the scriptures. Christ says if we come together in prayerful agreement, the Father hears our prayers. As a church, we want to do this, right, church discipline, these, this process, slowly. And praise God, we have. Some cases, we've drawn it out over like a year, begging, pleading, being prayerful concerning another brother and sister that are in error. And we do this with concern also for our unity as a church. Concern, because if we do this, we could tear, a church discipline could tear a church to pieces if it's done poorly, unwisely. So we want to be slow, methodical. There's no shade. Can't be any shade in church discipline. And this we testify to the fact that we are not just some club making willy-nilly half-cock decisions. We don't come together and make up the rules. No. We prayerfully seek God as a unified people, anticipating the accomplishment of the Father's will. We deal with sin Christ's way because we have unity to sustain. Amen? Verse 20. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. Take notice of this verse. This is really the culmination of this passage. That what we are dealing with two or three what? Professors. Gathered in Christ's name. Profession. The two or three gathered is really the minimum size for a church. Just like Renovation Church is a collection of 65 professors professing Christ and the gospel. What we see here in this verse is the culmination of the gathered, key, wording, prayerfully considerate church. When the church gathers in Christ's name to do Christ's work together, Christ places his name among them. He places his name among us when we get together to do this work with one another. You want to know why Christ tells us to deal with sin his way? Because his name in the world is to be exalted. His name in the world is to be upheld. Christ's name is to be supremely honored among the nations. If we tolerate unrepentant sin in this place, we make a mockery of Christ's name. We tell the world that Christ died for sins that we just can't be bothered giving up. We tell the world that oh, we get hypocritical moral declarations to everyone else while being a total hypocrites 
and we wonder, why does the world think they have the moral high ground? We drag Christ's name through the mud when we don't deal with sin. Friends, we deal with sin Christ's way because Christ has given us his name to protect, to uphold. If Christ's name is to be exalted in this church, as professors professing the gospel, we get honest about our need for a Savior. When we get honest about sin, we can get honest about Christ. We can get honest about the gospel. We get honest, Lord, we do. Lord, I need you. Every hour, I need you. My world defense, my righteousness, oh God, how I need you. When we get honest about sin, we can get honest and truthful about the gloriousness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And in that, we hold up Christ's name to the nations. We say, this is the one who dwells in our midst. The, the glorious Christ who forgives sins when we get honest with him. Who came to deal with wretches like us. When we get honest with sin, we can get honest about the gospel. And we can exalt Christ's name among the nations. Friends, we should, above all people, be willing to deal with sin. Because we love Christ. And we want him to be exalted. We want to honor him. We want to be like him. We want to be conformed into his image. Amen? If you're here today and you're trusting in Christ, daily discipline in fellow believers. Trust that Christ will be honored as we are humbled by taking sin seriously. Don't flee that. Don't isolate yourself from the church, from others. Be involved. Be together. Live out those one another passages. Trust Christ together. If you're here today and you do not know Christ, God's discipline is for those he loves. He disciplines those he loves. We read about that in Hebrews. But his enemies, he crushes with wrath. As a good judge, he must do this. Good judges must judge righteously and justly because this is who God is. He must do it. But the same Jesus whose name dwells in this place, the one who saves us from wrath for fatherly discipline, can save you from your sin. Jesus Christ died on the cross to save sinners. Right? This trust, this, the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full, full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. If you're here today and you don't know Jesus, go to Christ. Confess your sins. Trust in him for salvation. And anticipate the rest of your life the fatherless, loving discipline, the instrument 
of the local church. Brothers and sisters, who are these key, wielding, prayerfully considerate, Christ-exalting people? It's a church. It's a church. And Christ has given to a local church, the body of believers, the responsibility of representing him on earth by taking sin seriously. Renovation Church, that's you. He's given you this job to do. So as we leave this place, let's be faithful to Christ's call. Because we are a church, we deal with sin Christ's way. Let's pray. Merciful God, we come to you. We come to you in Christ's name alone. As our only remedy and salvation from sin. Oh God, you call us to many hard things. But with all of the difficulty, we know that in your will, you are being gracious and merciful to a people who deserve nothing less than your wrath. So God, be with us as a church. Help us to take sin seriously in private. Help us to love one another in this way. Help us to get honest about sin so that we can celebrate the glories of God, Jesus Christ in the gospel of grace. We pray these things in Christ Jesus' name. Amen. It's at this time the church, as we've talked about, has the opportunity of celebrating our unity together at the Lord's table. I'll just read the second half of this passage again. We read, Jesus say, truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. At this meal, we come together accepting one another, confessing unity with each other. We affirm one another's profession of faith. We partake of this meal together. We celebrate and express our unity around the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we do this in Christ's name, knowing that by faith, Christ is present with us in this meal. Amen? And amen, too, when we come, Christ feeds us with his body and blood for spiritual strength. That we may be wise to steward the authorities he's given us. That he may give us strength to sustain the unity in which we live. That he would give us grace that we would honor his name among the nations. Friends, if it's not clear, this meal is for Christians. So if you're a Christian here today, this is for you to celebrate. If you're here today 
and you do not know Christ, we ask you, please, refrain that we might be faithful to the scriptures, that we might not lie to you. If you have any questions about the glorious gospel, ask me, one of the other elders, or just any member of this church. We'd love to tell you about Jesus. This is for Christians. This is for Christ's people baptized into his church. So if that's you this morning, this is for you. I'd invite the uh, uh, servers to come forward. Uh, as they do this, there will be two stages, um, one on this side, one on that side. Uh, you'll come uh, down the middle. You'll take a piece of bread. You'll take a cup of juice. You'll go back around, and you'll, you'll take a seat and wait uh, so that we might partake of this meal together. And all of the bread is gluten-free uh, as well. So let me pray for us, and I'll invite you forward. Lord God, thank you for this meal. Thank you that you hold out to us Christ in it. Be glorified as we come in this moment, we pray in Christ Jesus' name. Amen.